Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode contains some brief discussion of suicide, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. For Jeremy Allingham, the revelation came all at once. It really caught me by surprise, and I remember this is quite some time ago now, at least 15 years ago. But I remember pretty standard uh, Canadian Friday night with the boys starting to get after it with some beers. And hey, let's head, head over to the hockey game, cheap tickets. Let's go see what's going on with the Giants. That's the Vancouver Giants, a major junior team in the Western Hockey League. Go down to the Pacific Coliseum, take our seats, we're double fisting, maybe a hot dog on the side. And I think most hockey fans know this moment. This could be a good one. And that's the moment when the gloves beat the puck to the ice. Now both helmets come off, and now they're full. And that's what happened here. And the jersey comes over, Cassian. And the whole crowd rose up as one, and they had that thunderous bloodlust. Both pitches, they erupt. All right, here we go. This is what we came to see. That's a good, honest tilt. Those are heavy blows, and that one was right on the money. Usually I would have been right there with them or not really cared or kind of shrugged it off as kind of like, this is just normal, no big deal. No idea why. Maybe I was maturing in that moment or what, but I zoned in on these two scrappers, and I'm looking at their faces, and I'm going, wait a minute. These are kids. Like, these guys are little. And I grabbed a program from a guy sitting a couple rows up from me and he passed it down to me and I went down the list of the roster and they were 16 and 17 years old. And that was the moment that hit me. I felt sick to my stomach. I was having kind of just major regret of having been a participant in cheering on two children, bare knuckle boxing on ice. And that was something that dawned on me was we are adults who paid money to come into this room to cheer on two kids to beat the shit out of each other's faces, and that just didn't sit right with me. Jeremy Allingham would go on to write a book called Major Misconduct, The Human Cost of Fighting in Hockey. No one else fights on a slick surface with skate blades beneath them. No one else who fights in the combat sport world can slip and smash their head off hard ice. But bare-knuckle boxing is what it is, and bare-knuckle boxing, as far as I know, is only legal in like three states. It's illegal in all of Canada outside of the hockey rink. Fighting is hockey's third rail. If you question its place in the game, you are sure to elicit an angry response from fans. I've seen arguments about abortion or like Israel-Palestine that are more even-keeled and reasonable than arguments about fighting in hockey. Like it really really fucks people up. To its supporters, fighting is a way to police the game and a mechanism to discourage dirty play. But to its detractors, fighting and the numerous blows to the head that players have to endure have become a moral crisis at the very heart of the sport. I'm Archie Mann, and this is Commons. And on this, our final episode of our season on hockey, we'll take you deep into the heart of this debate through the story of a man 
who made his living fighting on the ice and who eventually lost his life because of it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. I'm Brent Burns uh, with Minnesota Wild, and we're here with Derek, the boogeyman Bogard. Growing up in a small town in Canada, what, uh, what was your favorite team and what was your favorite player watching? Uh, I started playing hockey in the Toronto area. And- and uh, my dad was what, a big did? Leafs fan. Yeah, didn't you didn't know that. Know that? <laughs> Doug Gilmore and the Leafs uh, were the team uh, team to watch. And the good old days. Yeah, exactly. So there you go, fans. Uh, it's Derek Bogart. Um, I roomed with him last year. He's easy guy to get along with. I know he looks scary and he's uh, a big boy, but he's just a teddy bear. He's a good guy, fun guy to have around, and uh, that's why you guys all like him. So there you go. Derek was this kind of split personality, right? He had this public persona in the NHL as the toughest, meanest, biggest guy in the NHL. He was, uh, you know, six foot seven, 260 some pounds and caused fear every time he stepped out on the ice. You know, he was the guy sitting on the bench that was like, don't mess with our stars because Derek Bogart is sitting right here, the boogeyman. And fans loved him because they recognized when they got to know him that he was a big teddy bear and very soft-spoken guy. When he got off the ice, he had these little kind of nerdy little glasses and would sign autographs for anybody who wanted and was always there to take pictures for the kids. And that was more who he was. You know, he was the boogeyman on the ice. He was Derek off the ice. My name is John Branch. I'm a sports reporter for the New York Times. John Branch is the author of Boy on Ice, The Life and Death of Derek Bogard. Derek was born in Saskatoon in 1982. And though he spent a few years in the GTA, he largely grew up in Saskatchewan. His dad was an RCMP officer, so they moved often. Hockey, of course, is a big deal in all those little towns. And so all the kids played hockey, and Derek was one of them. He was a fragile kid. I think um, his mother, Joanne, would say he was, you know, in some ways kind of a, the, the mama's boy. He was um, picked on. You know, it sounds strange to think of somebody who later became the boogeyman was a kid who was picked on and bullied. Because he was not a great athlete. He was awkward. He was always a new kid because his dad's job was moving them around every couple of years. And he became the target, especially for older boys who saw this big, goofy, shy, glasses-wearing kid that they could pick on and, and use a sort of a litmus test for themselves. He really did grow up as, as somebody who just was on the sideline and did not want to be noticed. 
And the only reason he really was noticed was because he was often the new kid who was a big kid. Derek wasn't a particularly skilled player, but his size meant that he was often playing for the top teams. And by the time he was a teenager, Derek was dreaming of playing in the WHL and eventually the NHL. And he got his big break, but it didn't come how he thought it would. So the legendary story of Derek takes place in the old little rink in Melfort, Saskatchewan. You know, it's got about three bleachers on each side. And the Melfort Mustangs that Derek was a part of were playing that night. And somebody ran into a goalie and kids started pushing each other around. And Derek, like a, a bull, rushes over and just starts knocking kids out and knocking them over. And then goes into the bench and goes after more kids. And kids are scattering like cats, right? His dad is appalled. His dad is like, what? I've never seen him do this. What is he doing? He just lost his mind. And so Derek gets kicked out of the game and comes over and sits next to his dad. And his dad is furious. And his dad, Len, is, is, he's a cop. He's a Mountie. He's a tough dude. But he was like, I am not putting up with this. I don't know what that was all about, but you are not doing that again. You're not representing yourself that way. You're not representing your team that way. Just gave him the silent treatment. And Derek skulked. What they didn't know was that there were two guys from the Regina Pats who were coming through town that night and were in the stands in those bleachers. And they rushed out of that rink and went over to a local motel and asked the guy if they could use a fax machine. And they sent a, um, a fax, back in the days of fax, to the Western Hockey League office and made a claim on, on Derek Bogard. And within days, they were in the house saying, we'd like to sign Derek to the Regina Pats. They loved what they saw. They didn't want Derek Bogard because they thought he could score goals, rack up assists, or defend. They wanted him to be an enforcer. Most teams want to protect their star players from cheap shots and things like elbows and late hits. Try to keep your, your star players from getting hurt by, you know, these thuggish other players that don't have as much to lose. And to do that, you basically plant a nuclear bomb on your, on your bench in the form of, a, of an enforcer. And then enforcer then is the guy that's going to say, if you're going to pick on our star players, you're going to have to go through me first. Or you're going to have to go through me afterward. And the scouts that night saw Derek as that kid. The Enforcer is a singular figure in the hockey pantheon. And a relatively recent one. Here's Jeremy Allingham again. Fighting was not really adopted as a known strategy of intimidation until the late 60s and the 1970s. And people usually link that to the Broad Street Bullies the Philadelphia Flyers of the 1970s, who are like, we're going to get a bunch of big, mean, scary dudes. Maybe some of them can play, some of them can't. You know, Bobby Clark can skate, but uh, some of the other dudes can't. And we're going to just mash you into the boards. We're going to play dirty. And if you don't like it, we're going to, you know, put a little cherry on top by bashing you with our fists. And so that became kind of a go-to strategy that then did stretch into the 70s and 80s to the point where you get the Dave Semenkos, the Gino Ojics, the Donald Brashears, Marty McSorley's, whoever it may be, whose main job then was to be an enforcer. As far as the entire history of the course of the game, relatively new is that like player who fights or strategy of fighting to help try and win the game or influence the outcome of the game. Becoming an enforcer was Derek's only path to making it pro. He was so raw and still awkward, not a great skater. You know, he was one-dimensional. 
didn't score a lot of goals or anything else. So he really had one role that he had never really done before, which was to stick up for everybody else and, and fight. And they often did. And it took him a while to sort of find his footing with the Regina Pats and then later with the Prince George Cougars. He got older. He started to kind of fill out his body a little bit. He got more confident. His dad thinking, well, this is what he enjoys doing. Don't know what the other options are for his life as he becomes an adult. And he seems to love it. Let's help him out here. Let's give him boxing lessons. And so dad would take him to a boxing gym uh, in Regina to hone his skills. They've realized, wow, people seem to want your skills if you can hone them correctly and give them something that's valuable to, to these scouts or these coaches. And um, they pursued it because why not? In his years in the WHL, Derek got bigger and became a fearsome presence on the ice. He grew up into what he became. He became six foot seven and 250 or 60 pounds and was probably the biggest guy in the WHL and could at that point skate better because he'd kind of grown into his body and can certainly fight better and was gaining confidence. And now Bogart gets the hand loose and Redlick has got some problems with Big Derek. Bogart is throwing lots of punches and now Redlick tries to go to the top and then Bogart lands a couple of big uppercuts. And Redlick lands one, but then Bogart is just maneuvering Redlick around. Couple of big 18-year-olds. It became pretty obvious in Prince George that he would have a, a future in hockey, at least, you know, on the professional level, maybe not to the NHL, but he could play for a few years if he chose to. And he did. In 2001, Derek was drafted by the Minnesota Wild in the seventh round. He was heading to the NHL. This all came moments after Kunitz came out of the box on the breakaway. Now the fans are calling for Bugard. Bugard saying, I can't wait to get on the ice to knee somebody else. What you're hearing are Minnesota Wild fans in 2007 during a game against the Anaheim Ducks. They're chanting for Derek Bogard to be sent onto the ice and bash heads. Derek got sent out and skated past the opposing team's bench. He didn't fight that game, but the crowd, they still loved him. It took Derek years of work to get to that point. After he was drafted, Derek spent years fighting his way through lower leagues. He got the call up to the NHL in 2005. And in his first year, he had two goals and six assists but he led the Wild in penalty minutes. It was in his second year that he had his breakout moment, and it was against the Anaheim Ducks. He um, gets in a fight with Todd Fedoric, and he and Todd Fedoric were teammates with the Regina Pats. Todd, I think, was 20 at the time, and Derek came in as a 16-year-old. And so he looked up at Todd Fedoric back then, the fridge, you know. And by the time that Derek gets to the NHL, Todd Fedoric is one of the, the top enforcers in the league but not as big as Derek, just tough and scrappy and willing to do anything. And so he and Todd Fedoric have a fight one night. Here he goes after him now, and we'll see if Bugard takes him on it. There's Bugard, works the left. Oh, there he is. Oh, boy. He threw an elbow, it looked like, at Bugard, and then Bugard dropped him. Bugard's done that to wow. so many players. Watch the left hand of Bugard. He works it, and then he finally throws the right. Boom. Oh, dang. That just flush. To the jaw. And here are these two old Regina Pats going at it, and Derek hits Todd in the face and shatters his cheekbone and his, I think, the orbital bone of his, of his eye. I mean, just destroys one side of Todd's face. Todd just goes down in a heap. 
tells me later that, you know, he reaches up to touch his face and there's just nothing there. It's like eggshells you can feel inside the skin, right? It threatened to, to end Todd's career, but it made Derek Bogarts. Right then, everybody else who maybe hadn't seen him on the ice yet or who hadn't had to fight him yet thought, oh my God, <laughs> if Todd Fedorik is going down like that and having that kind of damage to him at the hands of Derek Bogard, I don't think I want to mess with that guy. Derek soon became a fan favorite, both for his pugilism on the ice and for his gentle demeanor off of it. For all the things that um, sort of seemed to get him picked on as a kid, sort of this big, goofy, quiet, oversized kid, all those traits are endearing to fans. They see him as a guy who comes out and scares people, sort of scatters the opponents like insects, pushes people around. They love that. But then they get to know him, they hear him on the radio, and they think, oh my gosh, he's such a soft-spoken guy. And I think that just by accident, that combination of being a superhero on the ice, but being the Clark Kent off of it, made Derek as popular as anybody on the wild. For a guy who didn't play as many minutes as most people on the team, for a time there, he was as popular as anybody because people love that. He's our guy who's going to protect our guys. And off the ice, he's like the big brother you wish you had. But here's the thing about being an enforcer. Few, if any, hockey players grow up dreaming of fighting for a living. I talked to a lot of enforcers for these stories in the book about Derek. And I don't think I came across anybody who said, I love this job. I think it's a, a fallacy to think that these tough guys, as they are euphemistically called, enjoy the work that they do. What they enjoy is the benefit it gives them, which is to have a career in, in hockey. But you will talk to people who you might consider the, the toughest people in the league, the guys that you would think must be fearless because everybody's scared of them. And they talk about how they don't sleep at night the night before or maybe for a week before they play a certain team because they know they're going to be facing a certain guy and there's going to be an expectation to fight. They are in chronic pain. They wish that they could score goals and, and skate the way others do so they don't have to go through this. But if they want to live this kind of life, this is the price they have to pay, and so they put up with it. Being a hockey player can be brutal on your body. Being an enforcer can be far, far worse. Derek had shoulder problems. He had back problems. His hands would be mangled from the fights. You know, as an enforcer, you just sort of put up with it. But most of these teams also have team doctors that are willing to give you the pills if you need them. The prescriptions were plentiful. He was given Ambien. And then there was Toradol, which can be dangerous for someone if they're experiencing a brain bleed. But mostly, he was prescribed opiate after opiate. Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycontin. The list goes on. And Derek was able to get them in enormous quantities. So what Derek realized, just by accident, and I know other players in the league realized, is that you know every team has a team doctor, but they also have a team of doctors. You have a dentist, you have, you have orthopedists that you're going to for your knees, or your shoulders. There may be 10 different people somehow associated with, a, with an NHL team that are doing medical practice on the players. And Derek realized, hey, when I go in and talk to somebody about my shoulder and they give me Percocet, and then I go talk to the dentist about this tooth that got knocked loose, they give me Percocet. And there never seemed to be some sort of depository of information, at least that nobody was checking. And so you could go doctor hunting, even within your own team, and get prescriptions. And nobody was saying, wait a second, you got prescriptions from, from seven different guys, seven different doctors? Nobody was doing that. 
And Derek realized once he became addicted to these things, wow, I can just shop for these among our own doctors. And as an enforcer, I'm getting hurt all the time. I have chronic pain. My back hurts. My shoulder hurts. I've had surgeries now. And these doctors aren't telling me no. And so Derek senses this and realizes this. And pretty soon he's addicted to pills and able to get pills as many as he wants. In one 16-day period, he was prescribed 150 OxyContins and 40 Vicodin by team doctors. What started out as a way to cope with the pain caused by his job had spiraled into an addiction. And Derek began to supplement the copious amounts of drugs he was getting from the team with even more pills that he scored on the street. Soon, Derek was constantly high. And even though he tried to hide the extent of his addiction, it started to impact every part of his life. Hockey players, just like a lot of athletes, are, are guys that will party sometimes. And so sometimes it gets conflated, right? You just think this guy just likes to party too much or, or whatever. You don't realize that he's going to the bathroom and, and taking a bunch of pills. And so when he's slurring words or seems to be a little bit off, you think, oh, he's had a couple of drinks tonight. We're all at the bars putting down some beers. But there is a night where Derek is found asleep in his car outside of a Home Depot, is brought home. Security guard or maybe a police officer basically brings him home. As you can imagine, this spiraled to the point that the Wild recognized it and in maybe about his fourth year or so, sent him to rehab. Derek was sent to a secret substance abuse program jointly run by the NHL and the NHL Players Association. So he goes there and doesn't spend a whole lot of time there. I believe it's in the hills of Malibu, and he goes for about three weeks, and it's basically a detox, and comes back, and he's really not a changed man. Thought, I'm not addicted to anything. This is ridiculous. Never buys into it. And that was the program. Now he's back on the roster. The program required him to sign a contract that prohibited him from taking drugs, going to bars or strip clubs, and to agree to a regular regime of drug testing. And if he failed to abide by it, there were supposed to be consequences. But Derek continued to live exactly as he had before. And he simply avoided drug tests or befriended the testers. There were no consequences. And so he quickly sort of slips back into his old patterns. And not surprisingly, those old patterns, you know, end up rearing their head again pretty quickly there in Minnesota. It was right around then that Derek's contract with the Minnesota Wild was coming to an end. And he received two offers, one from the Edmonton Oilers and another from the New York Rangers. His family begged him to choose Edmonton. It would be closer to home, closer to the people he knew. Instead, he went to New York. And Derek just can't resist the impulse of, you know, an original 16, Madison Square Garden. I think all those people who when he was a kid, picked on him and never believed in him and all those scouts that overlooked him when he, all he was trying to do was fit in. I think he wanted to inside say, look at me now. I'm playing in Madison Square Garden for the New York Rangers. What's bigger than that? And during all of this time, Derek was breaking the rules he had agreed to when he left the rehab program over and over again with no consequences. But what was even more shocking was that he was still able to get pills from team doctors, both in Minnesota and in New York. I mean, this is where the entire system breaks down. And it's just an utter lack of communication and an utter lack of prioritizing the athlete. 
you know, Derek is still living in the offseason in Minnesota. So he's still friends with the wild doctors. So he can call a couple of them at least and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here in town. Can you get me this? And yes, we can. But then he goes in September or whenever for uh, training camp to New York. And of course, they have their own doctors. They have their own 10 or 12 doctors. And hey, this guy's overweight. He's had some chronic injuries. He's got shoulder problems, hand problems, hip problems. And so they start trying to take care of him. Again, their motivation is to get him on the ice. The general managers and everybody else involved wants this kid on the ice. And so their job is to figure out how to get him on the ice. The lack of communication between doctors is astounding. Derek's life began to fall apart. He was sleeping during the day. He was not waking up very much. He just became this weird zombie kind of character that nobody could quite pinpoint exactly what was going on, but they certainly knew the drugs were a big part of it. In December of that first season, he's in New York. And, you know, he had arrived overweight. The, the Rangers weren't loving him. He was not moving very well on the ice. Even fighting, he just didn't seem to have the same gumption that he had had before. Just didn't seem to be as into it. And so the Rangers were a little taken aback, like, this is not the guy we thought we got. And in December, he just gets waxed by Matt Karkner of the Ottawa Senators. Uh-oh. and Karkner, two big men, have dropped the glove. It surprised everybody because people were like, Derek like, didn't even really have his hands up. Like, it just wasn't the same kid. What was he doing out there? And Derek drops. And is heading to the locker room. And was diagnosed with a concussion. By then, Derek had been an enforcer for well over a decade. He had taken repeated blows to the head. But this was only the second time he had been officially diagnosed with a concussion. He sat out for a few weeks, and those were dark dark weeks as he was away from the team. He no longer had the structure of, of at least a schedule to keep of doctors and trainers to see to sort of keep him on some sort of path. He was now alone in New York in his high-rise apartment, blinds closed, all quiet, trying trying to keep the concussion symptoms down. Midtown Manhattan's not the greatest place to live when you're trying to keep things quiet and, and dark. Derek was acting increasingly erratically. He was calling his friends multiple times a day, crying on the phone and talking about how much his head hurt. He sent over $10,000 worth of text messages in a single month. He started signing off messages with, I love you. He finally asked his father, Len, to come and stay with him. And when Len arrived, he could barely recognize his son. Derek has shut himself into this 57th Street high-rise apartment. So unlike him to be living in a place like this. He doesn't really have a lot of friends. He's now broken up with a girlfriend. He's very alone, has no real good friends in the Rangers because he had just gotten there. So he's just by himself. So Len comes and finds his broken son, basically, and says, look, you know, pick yourself up. Look at all the things you overcome. Nobody expected you to be here. I didn't expect you to be here. I mean, you're living the dream. You just need to keep yourself together here. And really just tries to give him the, you know, the, you got this kind of speech. But also realizes that Derek has been living a life that nobody quite recognized. Derek was eventually taken to a neurologist to help him with his concussion recovery. And the neurologist asked him, hey, concussions are a little bit tricky to diagnose, but how many times would you say you've been hit in the head, either by a fist or when you fell on the ice or something happened, where your mind just went black for a minute? Sort of the cartoonish, like, boop. You sort of see stars or you're just black just for a second. You know, would you say a few times, 10 times? 
And Derek's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Hundreds of times. Derek, among all other enforcers, among countless athletes still today, I'm sure, are very loath to admit that there's something wrong with my head. That was really the first outward admission when he sees that neurologist that, oh, I've had hundreds of that, those incidences that are probably now, looking back, a lot of them were concussions. By early 2011, the middle of the season, Derek still wasn't back on the ice. And the New York Rangers finally realized just how addicted he was to drugs. They sent him back to the rehab program, but he would never play another game of hockey again. At the rehab, Derek's behavior barely changed. He was allowed to leave frequently and got his hands on pills. And he was given leave to go see his sister's graduation in Kansas. Afterwards, he dropped by his apartment in Minneapolis with his younger brother, Aaron. They go out to dinner that night and go and have a few drinks and see some people. And they go back to Derek's apartment and a few people are over there. And Derek's making pancakes and it's after midnight, you know, the bars have closed. It's, you know, two in the morning. And Derek goes into the bedroom and then he starts kind of whining that his his head doesn't feel right and the room is spinning. And so Aaron goes back there to hang out with him and uh, finally Derek falls asleep at about three in the morning or later. And Aaron says, good, he's finally just passed out. And Aaron leaves, everybody else leaves. And Aaron and Ryan, Derek's two brothers, then the next day, obviously not that worried about him. Nothing occurred to them that they should have to check on him. But the next day, you know, they go and get sandwiches and they come early afternoon to, to go hang out with Derek some more. And Derek is dead on his bed right where they left him. Some shocking and sad news out of Minnesota tonight. NHL tough guy Derek Bugard was found dead early this morning in his Minneapolis apartment. Now, little details are known at this time, but Bugard, who was just 28, was found by members of his family. The official cause of death was an accidental overdose of painkillers and alcohol. Derek was 28 years old, about a month away from turning 29, in the prime of his career age-wise. Theoretically, he should have had many more years in the NHL. Everything was, was looking up for him, at least publicly. And so it was a shock because people didn't know what happened to him. The day after Derek died, his mother, Joanne Bogard, got a call. It was from something called the CTE Center at Boston University. The person at the other end of the line wanted to study Derek's brain. Now, CTE is short for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It's a type of degenerative brain disorder, and it can result in a constellation of symptoms that get progressively worse. Headaches, dizziness, aggression and a lack of inhibition, impaired judgment, risky behavior, a predilection to substance abuse, and eventually depression, suicidal ideation, and dementia. CTE has been linked to repeated blows to the head, and the only way to diagnose it is by conducting an autopsy after someone is already dead. Joanne Bogard wanted to find out what happened to her son. She let them have his brain. I think the family wanted answers. You know, I think the family, and certainly Len, wanted two things. One, to, do, to know he could do 
anything he could for Derek. It was too late to save his life, but what can I do now for Derek? And part of that was find all the answers I can about what happened to him. And if that can save other lives or if that can raise awareness, then great. His family awaited the results while they mourned. Toward the end of that year, they got a call from the doctors, the scientists at Boston University to say he had stage two CTE. And it was as bad as they had seen anybody at the age of 28. But it reveals itself in things like memory loss and impulse control, things that we might consider more with dementia or Alzheimer's. They're kind of cousins of CTE. Derek was showing those symptoms at the age of 28. And sure enough, he had um, a level of CTE that they had seen mostly in people much, much older than him. Hundreds of football players have been posthumously diagnosed with CTE after their deaths, but only a handful of hockey players' brains have ever been studied. Though the list of players who have been diagnosed is growing. Bob Probert was the first, but there's Stan Makita, Jeff Parker, Todd Ewan, Larry Zedell, Steve Montador, Reggie Fleming, Rick Martin, and just last month, Henri Richard, Maurice's brother and a star in his own right, was diagnosed with the disease after he died at age 84. The months after Derek's death were in some ways the first time that the NHL had to really publicly reckon with CTE. Because Derek wasn't the only enforcer to lose his life that year. You have Derek Bogart dying in May, and then later the summer you have Wade Belak, another longtime NHL player, and Rick Ripien both die. So you had three enforcer-type players die during one offseason, basically, one summer. And so there was a, a call. You know, if Derek wasn't the wake-up call, certainly the snooze button went off again with Wade Belak and with Rick Rubin. I think it really awakened everybody to the, to the plight of the enforcer, but also to, to hockey players more generally about what is it that we're putting them through and who's, who's responsible for their care. If these guys who are looked up within their own clubhouses as being the tough guys, the guys that we want to be more like that because they just have this invincibility about them. If they are the ones that are dying, what does that say about all the rest of us and the structure in which we live? Rick Rippian and Wade Belak both committed suicide. Their stories were remarkably similar to Derek's. And Belak's family allowed an autopsy of his brain. He, too, had CTE. So how did the NHL react to all of this? It was a horrible summer for the NHL. And of course, viewed you know through their lens, it was a PR nightmare, right? Their response was, what can we do to get this to blow over? You know, How can we batten the hatches until it goes away? And that's what the NHL did. I think in this day and age, leagues are concerned with things like lawsuits. And so they protected themselves by not saying much of anything, by not admitting to anything by telling people to be quiet, by not opening up books in terms of our care, our substance abuse programs. And then the games begin. And as we see with hockey and other sports, the games begin and we kind of forget about all this. The families were left to their own devices as if this was just an accident, an unavoidable accident that had nothing to do with the parameters of the NHL or the teams or, or even our own society. I think it speaks poorly of all of us. In 2013, a group of 100 former players sued the NHL, alleging that the league was negligent and had hid the long-term risks from players. The NHL fought them in court every step of the way, 
Eventually, the players settled for a paltry $19 million. Former NFL players had been able to reach an almost billion-dollar settlement just a few years earlier. But according to Jeremy Allingham, the worst part of all of this is the lengths that the NHL is going to obscure the links between fighting in hockey and CTE. They're denialists. They are CTE denialists. They are perpetuating a practice that hurts their players, but that they know a certain segment of their fans love. They leave fighting in for money. At the forefront of that denialism has been NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman, hockey's Pontifex Maximus. Year after year, Gary Bettman has denied that any link has been determined between head trauma and CTE. Here he is being questioned by Liberal MP Darren Fisher during a parliamentary hearing in 2019. So it appears that the evidence now is overwhelming, showing a link between concussions in hockey and other sports. What is your belief now, and what is the league's position these days on whether there's a link between CTE and concussions? Uh, I'm not sure that the premise that the link is clear now is one that the scientific and medical community has embraced. And so while we understand uh, that this is an issue that needs to be constantly followed and focused on, there have not been conclusive determinations. And here he is speaking to NPR earlier this year. And does the league acknowledge that CTE can result from head trauma? Uh, we listen to the medical opinions on CTE, and I don't believe there has been any documented study that suggests that elements of our game result in CTE. There have been isolated cases of players who have played the game, have had CTE, but it doesn't mean that it necessarily came from playing in the NHL. Here's the problem with what he's saying. There's plenty of scientific evidence out there. Just last month, a Columbia University study showed that hockey enforcers, on average, die 10 years earlier than their peers. And when it comes to CTE specifically, the problem is that we can't diagnose it until someone is dead. Now, we're going to get into the weeds a little here, but this is all very important to understand. What the NHL is demanding is a level of scientific certainty that we wouldn't be able to reach for decades and decades. The only papers they will accept is a longitudinal lifetime study of people. So basically what that is, is you'd need to start with kids who are six years old now and then run two groups and go, oh, the control group didn't have any exposure to contact sport and the others did. And then when they're 60 or 70 or 80, or frankly, when they die, because we still can't diagnose CTE in living people, then you go, okay, well, now we see that this group that had contact sport exposure has CTE, and now we can say, okay, repetitive brain trauma leads to CTE. But if you talk to reasonable scientists about that, they say it's ridiculous because there are hundreds of studies that link repetitive head trauma to the symptoms of CTE. Instead, the NHL hides behind something colloquially known as the Berlin Consensus. The Bible of concussion medicine is called the Consensus Statement on Concussion in Sport. Basically, the way it works is 36 experts, brain experts, scientists, doctors, neurological experts, 
get together and they talk about how concussions should be treated, what causes them, the underlying issues, et cetera, et cetera. And the latest version of that consensus statement still says there's no link between repeated blows to the head and CT, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And the more I learned about that process, the more everyone should be waving their hands in the air going, whoa, 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 what's going on here? This isn't how this should work. So when they wrote the thing the last time in 2016, and it came out in 2017, it's due to have an update uh, next year, or this year, actually, 32 of the 36 authors had direct links to contact sports. And these aren't tenuous links. These are massive research grants. These are chancellors of NCAA universities. These are team doctors in the NFL. This is the head of medicine for the IIHF, the International Ice Hockey Federation. These people make their living off contact sports, and then they turn around and go in a room and write the foremost, quote-unquote, research paper on concussion in sports. And so in the end, what we get is a watered-down statement that the NHL, that the NFL, that the junior hockey leagues can point to and say, hey, we're just, we're just following the science. The NHL strategy has precedence. For decades, the asbestos industry acted similarly to deny that there was scientific proof that their product caused cancer. And of course, there's big tobacco. You talk to uh, Dr. Robert Cantu from Boston University, who's one of the foremost researchers on concussion in sport, and he'll say this was the exact playbook by the tobacco industry. Well, we don't know because we haven't done a longitudinal study that lasted 70 years of, of 20 people's lives or, or 100 people's lives. But as Cantu puts it, he says, not everyone who smokes gets lung cancer, but that doesn't stop us from understanding that the more you smoke, the more of a chance you have of getting lung cancer. Same holds true for repetitive shots to the head and concussions and chronic traumatic encephalopathy. For Jeremy, there's no reason that fighting needs to stay in hockey. I think uh, the NHL's response to fighting in hockey has been pathetic. The leadership is non-existent. The only thing that will remove fighting from the game of hockey is a courageous administrator of the game to say, you know, we don't need this anymore. To be confident in our game and to say, this game is fast and spectacular and beautiful and entertaining. We don't need that shit. What we need to see is more goals, more skill, more talent, more speed, and not two dudes bashing each other's face in. So far, you just don't see it. Every time they have a chance to speak up or to make a move in the right direction, they squander that opportunity. So I would say the NHL has failed massively. But even if fighting is banned tomorrow, so many former players will be living with the consequences. And some, like Derek Bogard, don't even get to have that chance. Derek's father, Len Bogard, has been publicly outspoken over the years about how the system failed his son. And he's been trying to convince the powers that be that fighting has no place in hockey. And his mother, Joanne Bogard, does what she can to make sure her son isn't forgotten. Every year on Mother's Day, the anniversary of Derek's death, she writes a remembrance in the Regina Leader Post. Here's some of what it said this year. Twelve years have passed. I like to dream of what could have been, 
you would be 41 this year. Where would you be? Would you have children to snuggle and love? I'm sure you'd be helping teach your nephews and nieces how to ride bikes, skate, swim. It is something we can all only dream of, and I do. Truly miss the sound of your voice and those big teddy bear hugs with those long, long arms. CTE slash concussion fight continues, and I know because of you and now many other NHL players, the awareness continues. In my mind and heart, you will be 28 forever. Love you forever and ever, son, mom, and our ever-growing family. John remembers speaking to Derek's father, Len, after they discovered Derek had CTE. And he says that Len just couldn't shake the thought. What would his son's life have been like had he not passed away? Would Derek have even been able to recognize his own family 10 or 15 years later? Len, I think, is haunted by that. That notion that not only did we lose our son, and the guilt of that and the horror of that and the the sadness of that, but the realization hit Len that had we saved our son, what kind of life would he have, have lived? If these symptoms were like this at the age of 28, what would he be doing when he was 35 or 40 or 45? That is the double tragedy of, of CTE, is that it can kill people early because of some of these symptoms and, and, and change their lives. And if it doesn't kill you early, it eats away at you as you age. That realization, I think, really hit Len hard. That the best case scenario here was that Derek lives and what kind of life would he have lived? That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by John Branch in the New York Times, Jeremy Allingham in CBC News, Roy McGregor in the Globe and Mail, A. Martinez in NPR's Morning Edition, Derek Silva, and many, many others. This was our final episode in our season on hockey. We hope you enjoyed it. On a personal note, this is also the 100th episode of Commons that I've hosted. And I just want to thank you all so much for listening and for all the support that you've given over the last five years. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Cornish, and Noor Azria. Our managing editor is Annette Edgefor, and our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, 
invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything else, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. And you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join.